12th chapter of Isaiah is brought before us. The victory that's ours through Christ our Savior and the new birth, the miracle of the new birth, making us aware of the glorious Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, revealing Him to us, and giving us that blessed assurance that we're His after the passing of time. Good song. Thank you. I draw your attention to the 13th chapter of Isaiah. We finished chapter 12 and was talking with with Brother Ray. We could go right back through that 12th chapter and not be sorry in doing so. It's just loaded. But let's move on through our studies in the book of Isaiah. As an introduction, let me share this with you. Actual recorded Old Testament historical events all have spiritual interpretations. When God rested on the seventh day from His work of creation, which He called the Sabbath day, that typifies, the Sabbath day typifies Jesus Christ who is our Sabbath. And when we come to Him by faith, when God gives us the gift of faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we cease from our own works as God did from His and we rest in Christ and only in Christ and His finished work. Adam's sin reveals to us the total depravity of man. Adam didn't just dub his toe. He plunged the whole human race into condemnation. We come into this world dead in trespasses and sins, helpless and hopeless, totally depraved in that awful state and cannot get ourselves out of that. It takes the power of God to raise us from that state of spiritual deadness. Cain and Abel typifies two classes of people, two religions. Cain slew his brother Abel because his own own religious works now were evil. And he was of that wicked one. Abel brought a little lamb and offered that to God which typified Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. God had respect unto Abel and his offering. He did not have respect unto Cain and his offering. God gave Abel faith to believe and He has given us that same faith. We look to Christ and only to Christ. Enoch's walk with God points to the believer's walk of faith. Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. And God took him. But you can't please God without faith. It's absolutely impossible. We read that in the book of Hebrews. Noah's faith manifests the gift of God, His gift of faith to Noah, And when he was moved by fear to prepare an ark to the saving of his soul, that ark points us to Jesus Christ, who is the only ark of safety to deliver us from the wrath to come. God poured out His wrath on a world of ungodly people. The only ones who were safe were those who were in the ark. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It does not say that God found grace in the eyes of Noah. And that's exactly what happens to us. (laughs) It's God's grace. We're in Christ. And God finds grace in His own eyes for His people. It's God's grace 
And so all of these different Old Testament events point us to Jesus Christ our Savior. The flood is a warning of the eternal wrath of God that is yet to come. God had no mercy on anyone outside of the ark. They all perished. National Israel typifies God's spiritual Israel, His chosen blood-bought church. Egyptian bondage is a picture of God's elect and sinful bondage. The Passover lamb that was killed and the blood sprinkled on the doorpost of those Israelites typifies Christ our Passover, the sacrificial Lamb of God. The deliverance, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, Egyptian bondage points to the power of God in delivering His chosen people from the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of darkness, the power of self. So, and the list goes on and on and on of the different things that we read in the Old Testament that all have spiritual meanings pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished for His people. Now I've titled this morning's message, Mystery, Babylon the Great. And this 13th chapter of Isaiah is a prophecy of the destruction of that wicked city, Babylon. It had not taken place yet, but Isaiah had received a vision from God, and God gave him an understanding of what was yet to come in relation to the destruction of Babylon, that wicked city. And it has a spiritual meaning. The destruction of Babylon, like all of those other things that I have mentioned, and so many more that we could talk about, this Destruction of Babylon has a spiritual meaning. And when I walk us through this 13th chapter of Isaiah in a cursory fashion, I want to take you into the 17th chapter of Revelation and briefly show you the meaning, the spiritual meaning of the destruction of that wicked city, Babylon. Now, Isaiah is God's prophet. He's God's spokesman. He's God's preacher. And our Lord Jesus was revealing to His prophet in this 13th chapter of Isaiah what He was going to do, what He had already purposed to do. In other words, God was declaring His absolute sovereignty over all things, all events, all people, in the destruction of that wicked city Babylon, and it draws our attention to what we have been discussing over and over and over again. Our God is on His throne. He rules over this whole universe and everything in it, doing whatever pleases Him. He is not a failure. God cannot fail. And popular... Religions today present Jesus Christ as a colossal failure. He tried to save His people but couldn't get the job done. That's blasphemy. That's nothing but blasphemy. You worship a God like that, I, I just... I pray God have mercy on you. 
God has delivered us from mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And we'll see that as we continue in this message this morning. And please keep in mind what I've already stated, that what we're reading about in this 13th chapter of Isaiah has a spiritual meaning concerning mystery, Babylon the Great. So starting at verse 1 of Isaiah 13, and I'm just going to go through this in a rapid form. We read, The burden of Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Now this is a vision of the determined wrath of God that will be poured out on His enemies in a future date. God Himself declaring what He was going to do, revealing this to His prophet. Verse 2 says, Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountains, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. And a banner refers to a sign, a signal of some sort to be given to the Medes and the Persians to march against Babylon. It was to be lifted high above them. A voice should speak to them, a beckoning from a hand to rally their armies against Babylon to assure them that they would be able to go into the gates of that wicked city. Verse 3 says, I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. And the Medes and the Persians were the sanctified ones, the instruments of God that He would send, those that He had set apart as instruments to accomplish His purpose, to manifest His anger against His enemies. He would make those ordained nations aware of His Highness, causing them to rejoice in His mighty power. Verse 4 says, The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. And so the vast number of the armies of Medes and Persians would create a loud noise of shouts of preparing themselves to battle as our Lord Jesus would muster them together. Verse 5 says, They came from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land. And the land of Assyria was between Babylon and Media and Persia. So there was a great distance between these armies that God was mustering to be used as His instruments. They would come from a far country to uh, accomplish what God had purposed for them to accomplish. In other words, they would be weapons in God's hands to perform His wrath against those ungodly people in Babylon. Verse 6 says, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. And these prophetic words from God through His spokesman was addressed to the wicked king of Babylon and those wicked people under His reign. They had every reason to lament with howling of despair because the Almighty was coming to destroy them. The day of the Lord was at hand. Then we read, and let me remind you before we read this next verse, that we're looking at a prophecy of the destruction of Babylon, a historical event that had not yet happened, but did happen exactly as God purposed it to happen. And He gives exact detail of what's going to take place, and everything that He purposed was carried out 
to the minutest detail. Every little detail of it was performed by God using whatever He was pleased to use to accomplish His purpose. Now verses 7 and 8 tell us, Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. All the inhabitants of Babylon, from the nobles down, from the high muckety-mucks who were on the throne to those who were, were in any kind of a position down to the pauper, the person who was the most uh, lowest person of any degree that you could possibly think of, all of them would lament. All of them would be in a situation where their hearts would faint. They would just have no strength at all knowing what was coming upon them. Their faces would be as flames or as the word signifies, black with pain and anguish. Verse 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. God did not show any mercy, none whatsoever on those wicked sinful people. Isaiah is telling it just like it was revealed to him. The Lord is coming against Babylon with wrath and fierce anger, he is saying. He will lay the land desolate and destroy all the sinners in that land and none would be able to stop him from doing what he had purposed. This was God's purpose. Verse 10 says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and the going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And this is not to be taken literally, but figuratively. This language denotes the horror and terror of that terrible day of the Lord's wrath. Verse 11 says, And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. That wicked king Belshazzar and all his nobles filled with arrogant pride, dared to desecrate the sacrificed vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the Lord. On that awful night before their downfall, they had a feast. They were getting drunk, filled with arrogant pride. Said, let's use those vessels that were taken from the holy temple. And they used them to drink wine. That's when you know the story. That's when the handwriting came on the wall. And Daniel had to interpret that. The interpretation was telling them that they were laid in the balance and found wanting, arrogant, hateful, Christ-denying people who had taken the Israelites captive, just mistreated them and hated them. And God is going to show His fierce anger by pouring out His wrath on that whole land. Verse 12 says, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. There would be no great men left in Babylon to come to the aid of the people. Their gold and their silver would be useless to those ungodly sinners. The Medes and the Persians would show no mercy even if the most precious gold in the world was offered them. 
God would make sure of that. He had stirred up those instruments of war to carry out His purpose. And nothing could change that. Verse 13 says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. Some believe that a giant earthquake took place on that day. But once again, the language is to be understood figuratively. There would be nothing but mass confusion that it would appear to those who were dying under the wrath of God that the heavens were shaking and the earth was being removed out of her place. It's just that awareness of what was going on and not being able to do anything about it. Verse 14 says, And it shall be, it shall be as the chaste roe and as a sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee every one into his own land. The inhabitants of Babylon would be as frightened as a timid deer that was being chased by dogs or as a sheep from being chased by a wild wolf who had no shepherd to take it up in its arms and protect it. All would turn to their own families and flee for their lives. Verse 15 says, Everyone that is found shall be thrust through and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. God's instruments of death had been prepared against them and none would be able to escape. Like we stated earlier, the Medes and the Persians would show no mercy. Look at the next verse. Verse 16 says, Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. That paints a terrible picture before our eyes. But remember, this is God's Word. Those ungodly Christ-hating sinners will see their own children put to death right before their eyes. And their houses spoiled and their wives ravished, raped, sexually mistreated. And this is exactly what they did to the wives of those Israelites when they were taken captive and God was bringing this right back on their own heads. Verse 17 says, Behold, I will stir up the needs against them which shall not regard silver and as for gold they shall not delight in it. This is what we stated earlier. Those Medes and Persians were God's ordained instruments to carry out His vengeance on the Babylonians and nothing, nothing could turn them away from doing what the Lord Jesus had purposed for them to do. Verse 18 says, Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye shall not spare children. For emphasis, these words are repeated to draw our attention to the fact that this was God's wrath being poured out on them. No mercy shown to them. God Himself purposed this. Cyrus, the king of Persia, brought many, many archers with him. And those archers killed many of those young men with arrows, but they also thrust them through with their bows and put them to death. In that way, there was no pity on them, no pity on their women, no pity on their children. Now let me read verses 19 through 22. And we'll go to Revelation 17. Verses 19 through 22 says, In Babylon... The glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs or shaggy goats shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. These words were spoken by Isaiah, God's prophet, God's spokesman of the fall of that great, beautiful, excellent city of Babylon which was the glory of those wicked nations, those wicked kingdoms. That happened It was prophesied in this 13th chapter of Isaiah. It happened just exactly like our Lord Jesus said it would happen. Now turn to Revelation chapter 17 if you would please. Don't forget what we stated earlier. There is a spiritual meaning behind every actual historical biblical event to illustrate that very truth I draw your attention to an article that's in today's bulletin written by Pastor Don Faulkner it's on the inside back cover of today's bulletin titled Babylon the Great the Mother of Harlots and Pastor Faulkner took his thoughts from the fifth verse of Revelation 17. And here's what he said about that. Listen, this is so very important. In this vision, John did not see the resurrection of an ancient city. He saw a picture of a woman with worldwide influence for the destruction of men's souls. This woman is called Babylon the Great because she represents all the religious systems and doctrines in this world that are opposed to the truth of God. Babylon is the religion of man. It is any and all religions which teach that salvation is ultimately dependent upon and determined by either the works of man or the will of man. This religious system was begun in opposition to God in the fourth generation after the flood by Nimrod, the cursed grandson of Noah's cursed son, Ham. Idolatry is not a gradual decline from truth by well-meaning but uninformed men. It began in Babel as an organized intentional rebellion to God. It was the invention of a proud race who refused to bow to the God of Noah, trust a substitute, and come to God upon the grounds of grace alone. Babylon was born in defiance of God. The people of Babel despised God's sovereignty, despised blood atonement, and despised salvation by grace alone. They attempted to build a tower to heaven by the works of their own hands with no regard for the glory of God. Therefore, God scattered those men and brought their religion to confusion. Yet, wherever... These idolaters have been scattered through the earth. Their religion is essentially the same. 
All pagan mythologies, idolatrous images, religious rituals, and corrupt doctrines in the world, no matter how much they differ, have an underlying sameness which proves that they are all from one original source. And that source is Babylon. Babylon, Nimrod's plan to defeat the purpose of God of, of the God of Noah. The one foundational tenet that always remains the same in the worldwide religious religions of Babylon is this. Man's salvation ultimately depends upon and is determined by man himself. And folks, we're in a war. We're in an all-out war. I don't know why God has placed such a high honor on this old country sinner saved by His grace to allow me to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And I don't know why He has bestowed such an honor upon this little nucleus of people here at Rescue Baptist Church to entrust us with His Gospel. But He has. We as God's enlightened saints, have a relationship with God that cannot be put into words. God Himself purposed our salvation. Jesus Christ Himself purchased our salvation. God the Holy Spirit Himself, by His life-giving power, brought the, uh, the, the realization or the understanding, the enlightened minds by His power to an awareness of who Christ is, our great Creator who became a man for this purpose of redeeming His chosen people. And we've been brought out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's no greater honor in the world than to be a servant of the Most High God through the grace of God alone, through the merits of Christ alone, by faith alone. What an honor. And brethren... Everybody outside of those people who have been purposed by God before a star ever twinkle in the sky to be recipients of His grace, every person who is trusting in the works of their own hands, every person who is on that broad road that leads to destruction, who have no regard for the Word of God and His Gospel truths, are vehemently opposed to those who have been enlightened by God the Holy Spirit, who follow Jesus Christ and worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so what we're about to read in the 17th chapter of Revelation, and I won't have time this morning to cover all of what's contained here, so I want to pick this up again next week, the Lord willing. But I do want to explain some important truths concerning the spiritual meaning of what we read in Isaiah chapter 13. So starting, and let me say this before I read verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 17, the book of Revelation is not an isolated book. I hope you understand those words. This book perfectly harmonizes with all the Holy Scriptures. So many who profess to be God's preachers blatantly deny that 
And they have set this book up as a separate book from the rest of the Bible and it, it, they're wrong in doing that. The first verse of Revelation 1 tells us that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 announces the blessings on those who read and those who hear the words of this book. So what I'm reading to you from this 17th chapter is as much a part of God's Word that points us to Jesus Christ as the rest of the Scriptures. I understand that there are some symbols, some things that we read in the book of Revelation that requires some deep study to come up with the right meaning. But in every difficult passage of Scripture in the book of Revelation, we have this blessed assurance. It all points to Jesus Christ and His blood-bought church. So here in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 17 we read, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication." Our Lord revealed to His servant John the spiritual meaning of the destruction of Babylon that was prophesied by what God had revealed to Isaiah. Verse 3 tells us that God's angel carried him, that is, carried John, away in the Spirit into the wilderness. By the enlightening power of God the Holy Spirit, John saw a vision. John saw the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Verse 5 tells us, that great whore is Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth. In his book, in Pastor Fortner's book, Discovering Christ and Revelation, he said, This great harlot, false religion, is called by the name Babylon the Great. We have seen this name twice already. First in chapter 14, verse 8. Secondly, in chapter 16, verse 19. In both places, the name is mentioned as the object of God's great judgment. In Revelation 17, 18, and 19, John describes that judgment assuring us of the fact that all false religion here represented by Babylon will be destroyed and the truth of God will prevail to the glory of God. I say, Amen. Our Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And so we are surrounded by the enemies of God, the enemies of God's church, those who hate the truth. But God's truth, His Word, His purpose cannot be thwarted. It cannot. God cannot fail. He wouldn't be God if He could fail. And this gives us the assurance that He which hath begun a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear from those enemies. Oh, I'm not painting a picture to encourage you to take the evil forces of darkness lightly. They're powerful, but they're no match for our Savior. They're nothing but pawns in His hands. One little word from our Lord Jesus Christ and He'll destroy all of them. And He will. He'll destroy them with the brightness of His coming. Now, this great whore 
that we read about here in Revelation 17 is the spirit of Antichrist. It's the mother of harlots that sits upon many waters. Those waters represent unregenerate religious people of this earth in any given generation. Now, Brother Steve has been reading through the book of Proverbs, taking a chapter a week. And we've been hearing about the error of the young man in being deceived by an adulterous woman, being carried away by her her temptings and her her ways of enticing a young man to come to bed with her. That's wrong. Adultery is wrong. But that points to spiritual adultery. And those who are involved in false religions are committing spiritual adultery against God. And they will try to entice you into their way of thinking. Beware of Satan. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the concision. Beware of those who are antichrist. Because they're all around us. John was carried away in the spirit of the wilderness. The whole world is a wilderness. A world full of ungodly, self-righteous religionists who have been made drunk with the wine of the religious lies of the spirit of Antichrist. And because they have not been quickened by the Holy Spirit, because they have no love for the truth that they might be saved, God sends them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. We've been talking about this during our Friday night Bible studies in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. God sends those people a strong delusion. Those who have no love for the truth that they might be saved. Those who love the lies of those prophets of Baal. God sends them strong delusion. God sends them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. But listen, we were there. We were there. We were involved in that. In our unregenerate, ungodly state of spiritual deadness, we were deceived by the same lies of that whore that sits upon many waters. We were blinded to the truth. We loved the darkness we were in. We loved those lies we were hearing. We were just as self-righteous, just as ungodly, just as deserving of God's wrath as all of those who will perish when our Lord returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and know not His Gospel, obey not His Gospel. Well, why? Why is it that God has been pleased to deliver us out of that? Why have we been separated from that awful group of ungodly people who love those lies and hate Christ and His Gospel? Well, Paul tells us why in the context of what we were studying in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Right after, right after he wrote those words that those people have no love for the truth that they might be saved, therefore God sent them a strong delusion that they might believe a lie. Right after those words, the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write these words. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, 
Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you imagine? And I brought this out Friday night, but some of you were not there. Let me share this with you. Can you imagine the joy that flooded the souls of those saints at Thessalonica when they read about that Strong delusion that God sends those people who have no love for the truth but rejoice in lies, knowing that they were a part of that. Can you imagine the joy that flooded their souls when they heard these words? But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. The reason God has not left us in that state of spiritual blindness, that state of spiritual death, is because He loves a particular people and He has loved us from all eternity. We're called to be loved of the Lord. It was the love of God that chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God our Father in love predestinated us unto the adoption of children. This is God's love for His own. He has a love for His own chosen people that moved Him to write each individual name of His elect in a Lamb's book of life before a star ever twinkled in the sky. It was the love of Jesus Christ that caused Him to willingly subject Himself to such such pain and torture. The ignominious death of the cross at Calvary cannot be described by human tongue. When our Lord Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? He suffered the wrath of God in the room instead of His people, those He loved with an everlasting love, there was no other way that a sinner dead in trespasses and sins could be delivered from God's wrath to come except through what Jesus Christ did for us at Calvary. What a manifestation of God's love for His chosen people. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means sin atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ did not try to save His people. That's why His name was called Jesus. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. He didn't try to redeem us. He obtained eternal redemption for us. We are precious in God's sight because we're in Jesus Christ. We're in Him. We were in Him way back in eternity past when He agreed to the conditions of the eternal covenant of grace. We were chosen in Christ. We were in Christ when He came into this world. We were in Christ when He walked humbly before God the Father in perfect obedience establishing a righteousness for His chosen people. We were in Christ 
when they nailed him to that cross and lifted him up and dropped him in that hole and every joint was moved out of its socket. And we were in Christ when God poured out His wrath on His own darling Son. And only because of that, only because of what Christ has done for us, can we stand before a holy God acceptable in His sight. We've been made accepted in Christ, knowing with full assurance that we're free from the wrath to come. We were in Christ when we were running from Him, hating Him. In this generation, and in every generation that preceded us, God has a remnant. They're called His elect. And we were in Christ when we were yet enemies, hating Him, despising Him, running from Him. And the Holy Spirit, because of His love for His own chosen people, arrested us by sovereign love, brought us under the sound of the Gospel, gave us life quickened us, enlightened our minds to the truths. It's the love of God that just passeth all understanding. How can we understand the love of God? I put this little article under food for thought way down at the bottom of that page. Something to ponder. If God chose a people in Christ before the world began, if those same people were in Christ in His life of obedience up to and including His death, burial, and resurrection, if those He died for are seated together in Christ in glory, where am I? I ask you. Answer that honestly. Where are you? Are you in Christ? Have you come to Him by faith? I'm not talking about this phony Jesus that the mother of harlots is presenting before thousands of people. A Jesus that's done all He can, but can't do anything else unless you allow Him to do so. That's, that Jesus does not even exist. Come to the Christ of Holy Scripture. I warn you. I warn you on the authority of God's Word. There's coming a day when mystery Babylon, mystery is a comma after it, mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, all of those who follow after that beast, there's coming a day when God is going to pour out His wrath on that whole mass of false religionists. He will have no mercy. Like He destroyed Babylon, men, women, and children, He'll have no mercy. The only mercy that can be found from God Himself is through His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and bled and died for a particular people, His elect, who is now seated on His throne in glory, who is God Almighty, ruling and reigning over everything. The same God we read about in the Old Testament, the glorified God-man. Come to Him. Come to Him by faith. We don't dishonor God by encouraging you to come to the front of the church and repeat some sinful words after a foolish preacher and then give you a false assurance that now because you have done this, you're saved. No, we point you to Christ who has saved His people right where you're sitting right now. Come to Him by faith. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's no other way. Jesus Christ our Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Have you come to Him? If you're in Christ, you have come by faith by the sovereign, irresistible drawing power of God the Holy Spirit, or you will come if you're in Christ. God's appointed time of love for you. Our Lord said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And hang on to this because this is precious. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. We're His forever because of God's sovereign grace and His sovereign mercy through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Cease from your own works. Come to Christ our Savior and rest. Find that perfect rest in the finished work of the eternal Son of God when He suffered and bled and died for His own chosen people. Amen.